Hello and welcome to Got the Runs, the podcast with all the sexual chemistry of Crash and his boys. Uh, a lot <laughs> a 23 of year old and a high schooler. Do you think that the, their drummer is a high? Oh, I see. You're not talking about Crash. And no, the boys. I'm not talking about Crash and the boys. Although they are, of course, the uh, subject of my number one favorite joke. Is that girl a boy too? Yes. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I will say, we we are recording without video today, which might yes. make our rhythms a little different. Indeed. David, you have uh, decamped for sunny California? Indeed, yes. I'm sporting a cherry tomato style nose uh, that you have seen pictures of, no doubt, in our mm-hmm. family chat. Um, but yes, my wife and I are at a conference for her, not for me. Of course. <laughs> uh, so she's busy learning about best practices in her field, and I am busy getting sunburned on the beach and reading comic books. Well, we cannot dispute that. Um, and we cannot dispute that this is the second episode in our mini-series on the work of Brian Lee O'Malley. And we are getting into, I was thinking today, this is by far far the most popular comic we've that, covered right i i was thinking the same thing because i was kind of looking at it alongside some of the bkv stuff which mm-hmm. heretofore w- would have been i think um because as much as like persepolis is recognized and talked about i think just in terms of like raw units like something like saga or why would still have been ahead and i think mm-hmm. like I'm not sure where this would stack up in terms of like sales. I haven't looked into it too much because I know at least as far as like when it comes out, this it's it's not like an instant smash hit or anything, but I was curious because I was like, obviously it has grown over time. They re-release new editions of it. Like every two years, it feels like, um, and, and in terms of like cultural awareness of it, it's like miles ahead of any of the BKV stuff because the movie is so, you know well known so recognized so well received like was popular when it came out and then somehow has also like become a cult classic even right. though it like was already popular well, um i mean we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to the movie it was yes. i will say not successful at the box office right so so i would say visibility wise it's definitely like the best known series we've covered to date in terms of like broad cultural uh recognition sales wise i'm not sure it's probably like up there but for as many people for whom scott pilgrim is their first comic book of which i'm sure there are many like i don't know that it necessarily overshadows saga in that regard or why in that regard um just because like the conversion of movies to comics sales has historically not been like a huge success for the comics industry right yeah they've struggled to make that conversion right and i do think that part of the the good thing about this book which is scott pilgrim is what we're talking about we're talking about the first two volumes today scott pilgrim's uh precious, precious little life, little is life. The, yeah uh, not the best title i must say i think then, i was trying to figure this out a little bit i think it might have originally just come out as scott pilgrim oh really i think let me, so let me look at that because there are i'm reading from the color editions which have some extras in the back. Did you read color or black and white? I read my uh, black and white volumes. I think I got these as a box set shortly right. before the movie came out. They were all just like very conveniently collected. And I was like, perfect. Let's just like 
banger out in one go but the title card for the first volume such as it is like the the big like title splash page just says scott pilgrim and it's the only volume in the series that does that yes um however i will say there is in the back of the color editions there are a bunch of extras and stuff which have some fun info one of which is there's a poster for the release party for Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life, and it does have that subtitle. It All right, then. Pie took in my place, face. Uh, at Bordello on Markham Street. Mm, um, not familiar. <laughs> you go to a different Bordello, is that correct? <laughs> well, it's well known that I'm a patron of Zanzibar and only Zanzibar. <laughs> of course. And the Brass Rail as well. Well, okay, so hold on. Which one... <laughs> Which one features in that uh, bizarrely prominent cultural touchpoint for us, the Screech Owls, the night they stole the Stanley Cup? That's Club Zanzibar, right? Yes, Zanzibar. And and Zanzibar also features very prominently in like the climactic fight of the Incredible Hulk. I thought you were going to say the Avengers, because there is a part in the Avengers where you can see in the background the big slice, which is a pizza restaurant that's like on young street on that same block which is where i basically used to live like it's basically like two blocks over from where i used to live um so i can't imagine yes that zanzibar would feature (laughs) i I mean i i can tell you pretty much for a fact i remember because so we had this like children's sports book the night they stole the stanley cup from the screech owls series which features like one of the 13 year old players on the screech owls like junior a hockey team trying Mm -hmm. to sneak into club zanzibar and then the first time I went to Toronto as like a teenager, I was like, hey, there it is. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, it's the place it's from real. this book. And it has like a very like prominent and like recognizable sign. Yes. And then I remember being in the theater watching The Incredible Hulk. I was like stirred back to consciousness. <laughs> um <laughs> and like in the big fight, like when he fights abomination, like in the streets of quote unquote New York. Like when their big slugfest is like right in front of Club yeah. Zanzibar, and I was so blown away that I was like, <laughs> "It's like right there." The sign is so recognizable for like anyone who who like knows Toronto at all. <laughs> Anyways, um, Club Zanzibar and the Brass Rail, both well-known strip clubs uh, in Toronto, and of course in London, Ontario, where Brian Lee O'Malley uh, grew up. Well, I'm I'm interested to hear. What do you think is the iconic strip club in London? Well, it's got to be the Beef Bear, right? (laughs) Okay. So there are two. There are two strip clubs in London which have two of the best names of strip clubs. (laughs) I would argue in the world, the Beef Baron and Flesh Gordons. Well, you're forgetting the. uh, solid gold downtown, yes. well, which I, you know. which I think is for like the sort of person who this is turning into much more. We really should have stayed the strip club uh, for this discussion, mm-hmm. but um, I think for the like discerning gentleman, by and large, solid gold is the preferred club. I would imagine so. I think it's a little. It's like ten percent less seedy, perhaps. Well, and like Beef Baron is so far out of the way, and it's like literally under a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I believe Beef Baron is also the subject of like a pretty like long comedy bit. There's like a comedian who performed in London and on the way out saw Beef Baron and thought that it was just called Beef. <laughs> and has like a long comedy bit about like imagine be like working in a club called Beef. <laughs> just like <laughs> putting it right out there in the name. Not that Beef Baron is like so much better. Yeah. But... <laughs> well, he's royalty. 
he's just well, he's he's, he's, uh, he's uh, you know, he's landed gentry. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, what was I going to say about Be- Oh, I believe also one of the two has some kind of like Hell's Angels connection. I think I that is Beef Baron. Yeah. Beef, Beef Baron, I think, is probably the oldest of the three. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's got, <laughs> I, I think it's connected to like the Bandidos massacre in some way, which is mm. like a, a notorious Ontario, uh, like violent biker gang killing. Anyways, yeah, enough, well, enough, uh, London, Ontario strip club talk. Well, the thing is that this is, uh, this is the one episode where this is very apropos. It's true. Because, this is extremely relevant <laughs> because we are covering Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life and Scott Pilgrim versus the World and geography is a very prominent part of these books these books are set in toronto i was doing some research today while um, we were <laughs> i know shocking uh, and i'm not talking about going to the freaking beef baron if you know what i mean doing my research uh and i discovered that the house which is uh like the house that brian Lee o'malley lived at and mm-hmm. also they use so they use a lot of the real locations because i always thought that in the movie and you know of course we don't want to talk too much about the movie because we will have our own episode on that pray we don't tip our hand it, precisely uh, but i always was like oh that library i think is like a u of t library maybe or it's is like it not one of like the toronto reference library well they do or they like they like mask another library as the toronto reference library so there is the toronto reference library but then the scene where scott first sees ramona delivering the packages is Mm -hmm. at the witchwood library which they did really film at and that is very close to me and i think the the house which is on alberta avenue is within like let me just look at the at google maps here it is a 20 minute walk (laughs) from where i am like are are you talking about the house where Scott and Wallace live or that like Scott's like childhood house? I believe it's Scott's childhood house that, that has depicted. like the has, spire, like, a spire sort of yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that and I you know, I don't think his place or he lived there uh, the, the the house that I think is Scott's parents' house is where Brian Lee O'Malley lived and then the like hole in the ground where <laughs> Scott and Wallace live is like just like he saw a door and well that's right here in the comic i'll find uh, the actual information it, yeah. perhaps it but is he, it is like a very much like basement apartment uh, type entrance not unlike where i live i i did think that to my own self <laughs> uh yeah because he he talks about how he wanted to set a comic in toronto he did and part of the reason for that was he wanted to do a lot of photo reference and like be able to draw things better in short uh, and he talks about how he basically he walked past this like weird looking door and there was like an empty shopping cart sitting outside of it. And he says, that's where Scott and Wallace live. <laughs> but yeah, um, should we should we start there? Should we start by talking about Toronto? Um, there is a bit of like biographical background in the back of the first volume as well. He talks about how around like grade 11, he was starting to like become awakened to uh like culture and the the things he describes are uh watching weird movies at the local art house cinema which is i that's gotta be the highland Highland cinema yes in london uh reading the new yorker and listening (laughs) to the western university radio station and so those were like classic his, his three touchstones which you know is 
is weird. <laughs> it's yeah. weird that like this very ubiquitous piece of pop culture is so closely linked to where we're at. And, you know, obviously if you're a New York city person or an LA person, that's maybe a very common experience that just saw ambulance, terrific movie. <laughs> and it's, so do you think that his goal was just like, he wanted to do something sort of like, cause it's not autobiographical, I don't think, but there are a lot of details taken from his life. There are. Yeah. It, it's like, if, if, Lost at Sea is like the emotional autobiography, like autobiography, which is how we kind of described it in the last episode. Scott Pilgrim, at least like Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life is sort of like the circumstantial uh, autobiography where like, I don't think that he per se sees a lot of himself in Scott's like personality and character. Mm -hmm. But there are elements of his history for sure. As far as like he moved up to like a town in Northern Ontario when he was like in elementary school and stayed there until kind of like close to his high school years. And then he moved back down to Southern Ontario for like university and, and early adulthood, which at like, I think, so I think Scott stays there until he graduates from high school. Whereas we've talked about how BLM as he's hilariously sometimes referred to like moved back down to attend high school in London and then, and then remained for university before going to California uh, and, and sort of starting his comics career. But like that, you know, that's obviously very closely related to some of his experiences. Like eventually we don't get to it in these volumes, but Scott will eventually get a job at a restaurant, which was what he was doing to sort of pay the bills while making lost at sea and working on Scott Pilgrim, like the roommate situation. I don't think his roommate was, I have some, I have some information here. I, so I know his roommate was the manager of the beguiling, which I think we talked about a little bit last time. Yeah, we definitely did mention the beguiling. Um, so here's from, from the back of the first volume. Uh, in 2001, I ran away to California for a while to make comics with my internet friends, one of whom I platonically shared a bed with for six months. Uh, and I started thinking about naming a story after good old Scott Pilgrim, whoever he was. On December 31st, 2001, I moved to Toronto with my new roommate, Chris. At the beginning of 2002, I had a big breakup. And at the end of 2002, I met a new girl. And in between, I moped around Toronto and rode the bus with Chris and shot the shit about this Scott Pilgrim guy and all the things that could happen in his world. His world would be like our world, only way better. (laughs) And then he talks about how he... Uh, My life at the time became the basis for Scott's cast of characters. The American girlfriend, the unforgettable ex, the gay roommate, the sister, the friends, and band members. The rest just rolled out of my brain at ludicrous speeds. I only spent six months writing and drawing this first book, and it was finished in time for a July 2004 release. That's utterly demented. (laughs) I will say, like, as I was looking, like, kind of comparing the art between the two books, and, like, the art in the first volume is, like, frantic. <laughs> like even even during like the calmest like the calmest scenes there's just like so many lines there's like it's so it's so busy and just like not busy in the way of like oh i'm showing off i'm like blah 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 it just like it all looks it's not even that it's sketchy but it all just does look like he drew it so fast <laughs> like <Yeah>. so fast <laughs> yeah it's like it you know it's very artisty to be like it was just like pouring out of him but i think that like you know like it's a classic case of write what you know maybe where it's like everything because like this book is so just clearly like everything he is into at the time like being channeled into a book and like you know not in a way that feels 
too overly like pastiche either. Like, you know, there there are obviously like references to bands he likes and references to video games and things like that, but it mm-hmm. feels more real like the especially the world itself, like feels more realized than just like I like video games and I made like a thing about a guy whose life is like a video game or whatever. Yeah, totally. I, I think that stuff really gets overstated in part because of like how those things were inserted into the movie as sort of like part of the overall aesthetic and design mm-hmm. where like, you know, having having like the sound design where so much of it is like, right. you know, it uses like the 8-bit music, it uses the video game sound effects, things like that. And then also I think there's an element of it that is sort of like the hot topicization of Scott Pilgrim as well, which is uh, like also of course associated closely with the movie where like when they roll it out, it's like, what, what are the fans or like the people who are going to want to buy Scott Pilgrim merch? Like, what do they want on their t-shirts? And it's like, they want the video game references. Like they're not, they're probably not as interested by and large in some of like the musical components and those, yeah. the, those things, they're more interested in kind of like the nerd culture aspects of it. And so I was like going back, I mean, I've kind of alluded in previous episodes about particularly with the movie, like not being sure about how it would age given like how, how kind of like past that moment we are now culturally. But I was uh, surprised, especially like getting into this one and, and, having some recollection of how some of the things that are introduced in this these, these first couple volumes get sort of fleshed out uh, and and sort of subverted later on i was kind of surprised the extent to which as much as scott is supposed to be like kind of likable and and like a bit of an everyman for a certain like kind of you know nerdy demographic that we probably both would fall into it's also like a critique of like a certain type of masculinity in uh, that demographic that is like a lot more cutting than I remembered it being. Yes, unmistakably so. And, you know, we can talk about that in terms of like the way the character of Scott is presented and like it, it is a sort of a delicate balancing act of like how much are we supposed to like this guy? And, you know, like I think Knives is another character who like walks that line very sort of (laughs) tenuously at times Mm -hmm. and is like should we feel bad for knives should we like knives should we be like knives is crazy and you know we can we can get into all of that certainly yeah i i do like i think that it's it's such it's really impressive actually to to be honest knowing that like he didn't really have an ending planned out per se when he started working on it uh, but but to know how it does end as we've kind of alluded to already where where it does expose some of these things as really being like kind of matters of perspective i guess i guess that's what i'm trying to get at like he plays with the perspective i think in a way that is really effective and really subtle where like to read these first few volumes I, I, he was just sort of like so far ahead of the cultural discourse where you read these oh, and gosh. today it's easy to be like wow scott is like kind of like a scumbag and and there's people in it like kim all the time is like <laughs> like basically yes. is just like you suck like at every opportunity but he is just so kind of likable because he he's just so like kind of simple and stupid and it is so much presented kind of through his eyes that it it's so easy to like him but because he's so stupid and so obviously like flawed when they kind of pull the curtain back and and show how some of the events in this section played out from the perspective of other people who were involved it's like wow he actually sucks like so bad 
um, which makes like the growth that you see in him by the end of the series a lot more rewarding than if it was just kind of like, yeah, he was like a little directionless, but then he like grew up. It's like, no, he's not just directionless. He's like a bad person in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's interesting. And, and you know, I think that again, like it's, it's a bit of a, I bring up 500 days of summer a lot as an example of this, um, which does sort of occupy a similar spot in the culture where like, it's very easy to have like a facile reading of it and just see like <laughs> that this is like a likable guy. And I think that that especially is true for like, I think maybe sort of the irony of this book and of that movie as well is like the person who needs to hear that most is maybe the person who is least <laughs> likely to receive it uh, and will only latch on to like all of the other elements of it. But yeah, I think like, you know, we you go back to Lost at Sea, and I think it's really interesting that 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 book has a female protagonist, and then in this book, the women are so much more complex as characters. I feel like, like obviously, like I think Ramona has maybe like the most depth and feels the most real of anyone. Well, but like Kim, Kim is Kim also. Is well, yeah. I think part of it is like it's difficult to sort of like enter into everyone's psyche in the same way because a there's no like there's no point of view character in the same way. Like obviously Scott is the point of view character, but not in the same way that Raleigh is the point of view character where we actually get like the internal monologue and all that stuff. There's there's none of that, and there's so many more characters that even though you know the by the time you get to the end of Scott Pilgrim, it's probably like eight times as long as Lost at Sea. So there is lots of opportunity to flesh everybody out. But yeah, I I do agree. Like they are, they are a lot more complicated in a lot of ways. And some of that is because like we don't get the internal monologue, but every time we do get a chance to sort of like see beyond how Scott perceives them. Like, yeah, I, I think Kim is a really like rich and complicated character. I think Lisa, who is like just sort of, in initially introduced in these volumes his friend from high school uh, and who plays a larger role later on is also like a very interesting character um it's like knives is kind of one dimensional in some ways so brian in the you know in that same back section he talks about how like knives is maybe the most like coming of age character because she is the one who like sees the most dramatic shift from who she is at the beginning of the book to who she is at the end of the book, mm -hmm. but I, I yeah, do it's agree also that... true that like by the end of the book, she's not really as one dimensional. It's mm -hmm. really it like it's it's more so in the beginning when again it goes back to kind of perspective. Like Scott perceives her as like a kind of vapid but cute kid who it makes him like feel good to hang out with, and so that's kind of just how she comes across. But by the time we get to the end and and she really has matured we get to see her a lot more so as like a, a realized person yeah absolutely there's a couple other just some some sort of introductory things that i took from from the back of this book because you know especially like the biography stuff i think is really interesting mm -hmm. um you know he talks about how like he says like the week after the the first issue came out he had to go and get a job. I think he says uh, something to the, ex to the extent of, I was making indie comics at a microscopic scale. <laughs> and so, like, it comes out, and then he talks about how he went to Comic-Con, like, he went to San Diego. Uh, speaking of which, 
and there was one like he had nothing to show because the book wasn't done yet (laughs) and like i can't imagine how awful that would feel to like it's that classic like you're realizing your dream but you're also but then like you're sort of realizing that like realizing your dream is just like stepping to the foot of a new mountain sort of yeah and and like we talked about on the last one like he has written about how it's it's still like after this comes out it's like still another five or six years until he even like makes money from comics like that his income is greater than his expenses for making comics and like the first printing of precious little life sells like 500 copies yeah and do you do know exactly sort of when it becomes what it is like is it just a thing where it steadily picks up steam because i feel like this is a real this is a bookstore classic in my mind yeah it for sure is it it does like it gets it starts to get some attention before the movie comes out but i do think that like edgar wright's interest in it is part of what helps it pick up steam so i think like the first volume is pretty much like ignored basically except for like some some like canadian art awards which you know <laughs> it is what canadian it is. canadian awards are are yeah not, not exactly like the height of prestige not to be like insulting to canadian awards but you're just not uh, like competing against as much of a, a juggernaut as you are when you are up for global or north american or u.s awards um but anyway so so it didn't really make much of an impact but Edgar Wright did see it at some point and read it. And like, that was where his interest first started. And he got in touch with O'Malley about adapting it. So like I was reading something earlier where they were asking about Envy Adams and were like, she's a redhead in the comics. Why is she blonde in the, the movie? And he was saying like, well, Edgar read like, like review copies basically he got like unbound copies that didn't have the covers yet so he just read like the black and white edition that doesn't have the cover to volume three which shows envy adams with her red hair Mm -hmm. so he just like assumed that she was blonde so he like he was already interested before like volumes two and three had been released and was like reading the material in advance because he was like working on a script for the movie and so i think something like that where not that he was like such a huge name but the fact that there's like hollywood interest in it starts to sort of like make people sort of be like well what's this all about and and so it did like yeah it definitely was a slow burn and part of what he talks about in the whole like i didn't make money from this until 2008 is to say like one of the benefits of doing one of these long-running series is that if someone reads volume one and likes it then they have to go and buy volume two and so instead of selling one book a million times you can get away with selling six books like a hundred thousand times and still make like a ton of money because if people like it they have to just like keep buying the next volume and so it definitely like grows with that kind of freight as like it it continues to get more and more recognition then you know people pick up volume one and they like it and they pick up the next volumes and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. um so that by the time six comes out which was kind of like just ahead of the movie it has like a big release party and like plum tree comes and plays a show and like you know it's it's a whole like star-studded affair and the cast is there and etc etc but like if you poke around like it's hard to find press on it before like 2009 which would have been when they're like starting to ramp up the press for the movie and most of it is from after the movie comes out 
and and it's like this whole big thing that people are like let's talk to brian lee o'malley about scott pilgrim now so like yeah it, it definitely like i would say it took probably like 10 years to really like fire up completely and and be sort of like the cultural touch point that it is today yeah and it's interesting because like it it's very weird to think about like oh this book predates like youtube <laughs> yeah <laughs> like the extent to which i like the extent to which this is ahead of its time in a lot of ways i think is like a, a little undersold because we think of it as being like a late 2000s early 2010s book yeah or, when, or like a millennial icon when so many of the millennials would have been like you know in the like 10 to 14 range when it first came out right exactly um and you know i, I there was a quote on the book uh, i didn't i think it's the globe and mail but they say it's an ambitious meditation on what growing up means to a generation for whom comics and video games are not just cultural touchstones but the dominant iconography and i feel like that is just a thing that became so much more prevalent and talked about and all the rest like during the time when like around the movie came out like late 2000s early 2010s is so much more of that and so it's interesting like how sort of prescient it is in that way and you know maybe it's just like tapping into to what like people of that age felt like at that time maybe Mm -hmm. before we like dive more so into the (laughs) the book itself um I wanted to read you something from a blog post that uh, O'Malley made after the movie came out that uh, I thought you would be interested in. Um, So someone wrote into his Tumblr, which was very active for a long time and an easy way to reach him to basically say like, why are, why are there so many white people in Scott Pilgrim? Mm. And like, I kind of thought that there were more, like uh, there there were more non-white people in it when I sort of like interpreted the characters and this is what the, here are a few uh, particular quotes about that that he replied to this question with he says I am mixed white and Korean and grew up being told that race didn't matter that race was kind of over as with many things you're told as a kid it took me many years to realize that that wasn't really true it was kind of wishful thinking on the part of my parents who were in a mixed relationship mm-hmm. um, I wish it was true we all wish it was true but it's not true I grew up in an extremely white environment in northern Ontario uh, it was really just white people and First Nations people and then I moved to a bigger town aka London in high school and I think my school had like three black black kids and four Asian kids or something later in high school and college I hung out with Asian kids a lot but white Canadian culture was like 99% of everything around us what I'm saying is (laughs) what I knew in the first 20 years of my life was white people and a little bit of Asian people and so that's what I put in Scott Pilgrim I didn't really think about that attitude until years later and then the uh, NBC interviewed him about this as well and he was saying NBC Yeah, NBC. He said, "Uh, I guess I was just writing myself and I didn't even think about myself in terms of race. I grew up surrounded by almost exclusively white people. I just assumed I was white until proven otherwise. But then I realized that's not the case uh, and was not the case at all. And, uh, And goes on to talk about it a little bit more to say, like, in some ways, Scott Pilgrim is his fantasy of being a cute white indie rock boy and says, I guess I whitewashed myself out of my own story and got what I deserved. I was curious to hear what you think about that, the extent to which you relate to that, given that we are uh, also 
mixed half Asians from London who, I mean, I don't, I don't know. We went to the same high school, but years apart and we're not there at the same time. Mm-hmm. What, especially when I was reading him say, like, I think there were three black kids and four Asians. I was like, that sure does sound like a high school in London. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I will. I mean, like, I certainly think that I relate to that a lot. I think, you know, the idea of, and, you know, this probably gets into more, like, <laughs> things that are specific to our family in terms of, like, how in touch people in our family are with, like, our Chinese culture and things like that. But, yeah, I think, like, if you're in a mixed family and you are predominantly surrounded by white people, then, like, it is very easy to, like, default to white And, you know, I mean, for me especially, I think you often sort of get pegged as being not white. But I think... (laughs) Well, here's here's what... uh, Another little section here. Growing up in London, Ontario, he rarely talked to his parents or siblings about identity, but he remembers how he became aware of his race for the first time when he was seven or possibly younger. I got a tan one summer, and I always had a tan compared to most people. But before that summer, I didn't realize I was different. And after that summer, I did. (laughs) I was like... Hmm. <laughs> yep, that, that is, like, very... I mean, like, you know, I don't want to speak too heavily, but, like, Brian O'Malley's skin tone and things like that. But, like, I would say he is visibly a visible minority, if you want to use that terminology. Whereas I think for me and for some of our siblings, that is maybe a little less the case. Like, I think it is a lot easier for us to pass as, like, 100% white than it is for you. And it mm-hmm. is for other half Asian people I know. Um, so, yeah. So, I, I was actually curious because I was telling uh, my wife about this article yesterday and we were talking about it. And she was she was questioning the extent to which the other siblings might have been previously identified. Has anyone, like, I, has anyone, A, ever, like, correctly identified you as being Chinese or part Chinese? And have you ever been asked directly like what your ethnicity is. I have been asked what my ethnicity is. I have had people ask if I have native ancestry uh, and or indigenous ancestry. I've had people ask if I am Russian for some reason. Oh, um, but the I this is a, a very distinct memory because it is the one time that someone has ever like <laughs> nailed it. Is I had a coworker at a summer job a few like you know back in in university and I forget exactly what the topic of conversation was but but they they we were just talking and they were like oh and like you're like half Asian and I was like how did you know that <laughs> and and she said my husband is Cambodian <laughs> and my children are half Asian and so I recognized that you were half Asian and that is like the only time that I ever like was sort of like you nailed it in that way and i have another memory of actually a very good friend this is uh when i was doing college last year um like people were out drinking and i was sort of talking and like there were other non-white people in the program and i was talking about like oh like white people like i said something about white people and they were just like sort of derisively like in the way that you would like make fun of a friend was like no one sees you as not white (laughs) and and like i I was like on one hand that's funny but on the other hand it's like that does you know that is like what like casual erasure of identity looks like for a mixed person that like Mm -hmm. no one perceives you as not white and i feel like um you know i think in our childhood certainly like race was not a big thing and i sort of regret that to some extent because you know like 
now I'm like, it's so cool that I am <laughs> like a minority and that I have like this ancestry and I would love to be like more in touch with it. And so that is like, I do wish a little bit that like if that had been more of a thing. And so I definitely relate with that like really strongly. Mm-hmm. To to put a similar button, I would I would love to speak with him about this. He says, uh, "I don't feel any connection to Korean culture or Canadian culture or American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I just feel very unique, which is sometimes a good thing and sometimes just so depressing." And then it says, especially being mixed, he sometimes feels guilty identifying as a person of color, mm-hmm. as if compared to others, he isn't of color enough to feel that way. And then it goes on to say his mother has always spoken like fluent and, and excellent English since before he was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> but but he doesn't speak any Korean. And he says, my mom told me years later, you just weren't interested. And I probably wasn't. I've never been interested in much besides the fantasy world in my own head. Um, <laughs> So 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 he's really sure, highly from relatable. Us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I just thought that would like it's it's in some ways it doesn't really have any bearing on Scott Pilgrim because as he said like the whole sort of impetus for him thinking about that was for him to realize kind of how white Scott Pilgrim as like a property is. But I I just thought that was something that was very interesting and relevant to us that I was uh, I was curious to hear your thoughts about. Yeah, and it's interesting that the person sort of talks about like that reading the book, they they that like seen different characters as like less white than they were, or, like you know like not white potentially, mm-hmm. because something that really stuck out to me is when Ramona says that she's talking about Matthew Patel and she says he was the only non-white non-jock who like went to her school or was in her area. And then I was like, is Ramona white? Is she like half Asian? (laughs) Because I feel like (laughs) if you like, if you like then like look at her again, it's like, Oh, are you white? Well, it's, this is the thing. I, I initially read that and I was kind of like surprised to read that other people like kind of read other or like a greater amount of diversity onto the characters because I, I again, very similar to O'Malley, like I kind of default to thinking of myself as white a lot of the time. I often just sort of like see things through the white lens. And so it hadn't really occurred to me, but then reading it, knowing that he had had like this in this conversation kind of with some of the the fans and readers, I was sort of like, I mean, like Wallace looks like he could be Asian or half Asian. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, there's a, like Como would be another person. (laughs) Like there's, there's tons of characters in it who, if you were like inclined to read it because the art is like so cartoonish, like it's not difficult to read other races onto a lot of the characters, especially the characters who have like darker features in terms of like their hair, or I guess they all kind of just have like pitch black eyes, but. Right. And you know, that's something that comes up in manga as well. And we can talk about like sort of the, the manga influence again here, but people, uh, people say like, Oh, why are char- all the characters in manga white? And I think the, the answer to that is just like, the people who are drawing it do not think of them as white. Like, they just draw them, like, the way that they draw them. And then, like, to a white person, maybe that communicates whiteness more than it might to a Japanese person or something like that, where, like, they they aren't necessarily being drawn with race in mind. Like, they're just being drawn as, like, characters, irrespective of that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he in his post kind of comments as, on that as well. He says in the in the comic they were just cartoons. Right. You can project yourself into a simple drawing of a person so easily that race seems to matter less. And then specifically says, look at the global popularity of manga manga where everyone is ostensibly Japanese. And and it's true like in the same way like once you translate characters from the black and white art that is you know ubiquitous for manga into uh, anime which is usually in full color you know it's it, it, most of the characters are extremely ambiguous and they could be like of any ethnicity in some ways if you if you chose to read them that way mm-hmm. yeah and even like the way that the book is colored looking at the color versions like knives as skin does not look dramatically different from like, like i'm looking right now like the fight scene between ramona and knives and library it's like they are not colored differently like they both just have right. like skin tone which again like you would probably default to thinking of that as white if you didn't like you know like with knives it's very obvious and made explicit that she is asian um (laughs) but like you wouldn't necessarily have that thought instantly well speaking of the the manga of it all and and influences let's dive into it a little bit uh well do we want to try and summarize first or are we assuming that people are pretty familiar with we can, we can the plot line? i mean I, I do i fear that a lot of people or that more people will listen to this episode than most of our other episodes so i i do feel some responsibility to get it right yeah, I'm, I'm, now I'm just looking at the the original pitch, which he sort of he writes out the volume one plot and then has all the characters and stuff. But yeah, I think he you know he talks about how he wanted it to be like a shonen, like that's the main inspiration, certainly in terms of the arc of it all and having the seven evil exes and things like that. And then mm-hmm. you know also obviously says like it has slice of life elements, it has the music element, obviously like really like it's more of a music book than it is a video game book in a, a, yeah, a lot big of ways. Time. Yeah. Um, I, I read a conversation that he had with some manga creators where he was saying that he wanted to make a shonen style comic. And then he says, I hadn't really read a lot of shonen comics. Uh, Ranma one half was really the only one I knew well, which is funny to, to think about uh, in terms of like, you know, the, the, the manga influence on the art is so, much a focus of his his kind of art style um and i have read some other interviews where he talked uh, a little bit more actually i think it was in with the back of one of the books he like cited some other specific titles and, and things but it seems like a lot of it was the anime of them not the original mangas and what he really gravitated towards a lot of times was like the character designs and that was that was sort of the influential mm-hmm. element but the other manga that he cites as a big influence is uh, a parody that I wonder if you are <laughs> aware of uh, that is supposed to be a, 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 like how to draw manga style like teaching guide called Even a Monkey Can Draw Manga. I'm are not you familiar, familiar with this, this at all? No. <laughs> I like bizarrely read uh, an article about this in a sociology journal recently and then was surprised to see it as one of his inspirations. But it's like 
like a mad magazine almost style right. parody of like here's how you do manga and so they like he they like arranged for him to have a conversation with the creators of that book to like talk about scott pilgrim and kind of like the manga industry at large and to give you a sense of kind of what is in the the style of monkey manga as they abbreviate it to <laughs> <laughs> their section on shonen manga they uh demonstrate story structure for for shonen manga as the shonen manga plot shish kebab and they have an image of like a shish kebab with four uh like little spheres of food mm-hmm. on it and then underneath they break down what is in the shish kebab which is start and then each of the four things is labeled fight 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 right. <laughs> the note is no matter how complex a shonen manga story is it all comes down to fights continuing until the hero dies achieves victory or the series gets canceled and then they have a long section called every day is a battle where they talk about uh they they say when you reach a dead end in your story all you have to do is have the hero yell let's fight followed by the caption to be continued <laughs> the final results should be the hero's victory but you should have him lose every once every three times to make him reevaluate himself go to a snowy mountain and train he'll win the next challenge but he'll say to his defeated rival you're a real man now and make him a follower it's <laughs> um, good stuff uh, yeah it's, I mean, it's great stuff but yeah i mean like i think like in terms of shonen manga like i mean obviously the big thing is like the fight scenes and you know it's like the story is punctuated by the fight scenes still or by you know the the encounters you can call them they're not all fights per se but and i think like a sort of an important piece of the sort of shonen the shonen shish kebab if you want to put it that way is that <laughs> like you have those down times as well and like that it's sort of like we we launch into a a, some sort of campaign or like a battle or whatever and then like we come out of that arc and then there's like a lull where people are like you're back at the home base you're interacting with each other like you're sort of dealing with like the emotional fallout of these fights and then you launch back into a new fight and i think that that is sort of what the what this is going for in a lot of ways like he talks about in the pitch like the further books in the series will alternate between fighting, training, band practice, shows, the ongoing relationship with the Ramona Flowers, the building mystery of Gideon, the continuing traumatic experience that is Knives Chow, and the constant <laughs> present of, presence of Scott's friends and family to tell him everything he's doing is wrong. Um, <laughs> and that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it, it is like very much like as much as it is sort of a shonen manga like uh, of course it's also a parody very much in the sort mm-hmm. of same vein as monkey manga's like shonen shish kebab where he's having like fun with those tropes in in a lot of Absolutely. ways much more so than he is really like strictly adhering to it and and like i think it's telling that Renma one half is kind of like his big right. sort of shonen touch point because that book like are you familiar with that at all yes i am familiar like broadly speaking yes i, yeah. I don't even like know if i think of that as like a shonen fight manga in the traditional yeah, sense it's, it's like a sex comedy almost yeah. as much as it is a fight manga like I, I, which i think applies to scott pilgrim as well where it's like yes there's fights but i was like reading a wikipedia like summary of it where it was talking about how like his his sort of like the main characters like fights and his quest uh which is to like remove this curse that's been placed on him are often hampered by like conflict with his rivals and the like relationship ups and downs of his quote many fiancés. <laughs> 
<laughs> which I was like, the, it, it really is so much. And, and even in this conversation with the monkey manga guys, like O'Malley describes Scott Pilgrim, not only as a shonen manga, but also as a, har- a harem manga, um, sure. which is like, it's, it's kind of true also, because as much as it is about like the love story with Ramona, you know, we have knives is like introduced it from the very beginning as a, a like alternate love interest. We will later learn that he dated Kim when they were in high school. Uh, Envy Adams, you know, is around quite a bit. Uh, Lisa, his friend from high school uh, factors in there as well. So like as much as it is about his like love story with Ramona, there is like this whole gaggle of (laughs) of women that are around him to like present him with alternatives in some ways. Yeah. And maybe that gets back to the idea of like the female characters being more complex, because I feel like that is something you'd see out of a harem manga where the women have like all these very defined personalities and like differences between them. And then the guy is just like a very generic guy who like, I, I imagine mm. the reader can sort of like project onto him and, and who is kind of like a straight man for the, you know, the various comedic situations yes. that the, the different character traits of the different women will put him into. Yes. Which is, uh, you know, a little, you know, I think, I think he puts himself. Yeah. In a Scott lot of is not exactly a straight man. <laughs> um, but let's, let me quickly do the plot summary. Cause I'm looking at the pitch right now. So I can sort of read from that. Um, so put, put, Start the clock. Good afternoon. <laughs> uh, so okay, go. Scott, you know, I'll, and I'll paraphrase here because it does differ from the actual comic in some ways. But Scott Pilgrim is a 23-year-old jobless type of kid living in Toronto. He has a few jerky friends, and they're in a band together. He lives with a gay roommate. He's dating a Chinese Canadian high school girl named Knives Chow, uh, who is totally thrilled to be going out with a 23-year-old indie rock type of guy. So he's with Knives Chow, and then he has a dream about this girl, uh, who it turns out is a real girl named Ramona Flowers. Uh, He falls in love with her pretty instantly. They get together. Um, You know, he doesn't break up with Knives Chow uh, and sort of, like, (laughs) leads her on in some respects. Um, They get together. They're happy. and And then she reveals that Scott is going to be called upon to defeat her seven evil ex-boyfriends, and to, uh, you know, in order to be with her, and then at the same time, there are other <laughs> elements as well. Like the band is playing shows. Towards the end of this volume, we introduce the character of Envy Adams, who is Scott's ex-girlfriend, who has come up multiple times as like this notorious bad breakup that has like sort of emotionally stunted Scott. Um, and so, you know, we get, we get through two evil exes and then the third one, Todd is introduced at the end of this book that we covered. Yes. I, um, in rereading it, I was kind of like blown away how much the like elevator pitch takes almost the like entire volume to get to like the fight with Matthew Patel and the like formal introduction of the evil exes is like in like the last quarter of the book. Yes, the the pa- the part where she explains the seven evil exes is literally the last scene of the comic. Yeah. Which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, so where where do we want to start here? Um there do we want to talk about the character of Scott? Do we well, I, one thing early on, I think, where things sort of coalesce and you see what the book is going to be 
is the band practice scene at the start with knives um because like you have the banter between all the different characters like the sarcasm things like that and then you have the the depiction of the band practice which clearly has the manga anime influence where it's like (laughs) their rock is causing like lightning to spark and like their hair is Mm -hmm. flying up and things like that and obviously the music element is there and then you have like this meta textuality of it where (laughs) it has like the chords laid over the lyrics and it's like play along and it's like that that i think is another crucial element of it which gets overlooked sometimes is just like that metatextual humor uh and you know i think maybe that comes through more in a movie where that kind of stuff is less common than in a comic but like that is certainly a big element of it as well yeah yeah, I, I do, th- like, it's quite interesting the extent to which the sort of, like, manga influence and parody of it is kind of in there right from the beginning in terms of some of the stylistic things, like, just, like, the introductory, like, title cards where it says, like, the name and the age and the rating, yeah. and later on there'll be, like, fun facts sometimes as well. Like, I sent you in the chat a link to another page from Monkey Manga where it does, like, the exact, like, there's so much of Scott Pilgrim in this <laughs> where it shows the artist inking a page or he's like drawing the panel borders um, with a ruler and then he pulls the ruler down and it smears the ink down the page (laughs) and then shows him reacting to that with like extreme horror where it is just like all of like the speed lines all of the like insert shots Mm -hmm. the like face of his like abject horror and then it does the exact same thing which like I didn't really think of per se as being like a manga thing but then as I kind of reflected on it I was like yeah they do kind of do that sort of like introductory like placard for characters a fair bit Mm -hmm. where you know it shows him screaming in rage at the smear from his ruler and it's labeled Koji Aihara 19 years old where where yeah it just like gets in there right from the start the fact that he uses that as kind of a source of some of the comedy right from the get-go as well sort of like sets you up for how tongue-in-cheek the book is going to be yeah and and yeah i think like it's funny because in some ways i think that the very first scene is almost like the best representation of what the book is going to be where it's like literally just them like sitting around the kitchen table and like kim is like unimpressed that scott is dating a 17 year old (laughs) which it's really terrible (laughs) um yeah it is is crazy but i feel like using those little placards like starts to introduce some of the tone of the book in a way that's really effective so that when you get to like ramona using the subspace like highway things um and and introducing some of the more like crazy magical realism and being like this is just a thing in this world Mm -hmm. it's like you, you're not like, wait, what is this? Like, what's what's going on? Is this ever going to be explained? It's just sort of like, well, no, it just is a thing in, in this world. And why is it a thing? Because, like, it's funny. And because it's, like, a good, a good plot device that I'm enjoying using. So it's a thing. Yeah, I did clock that as well. I actually noted the page, which I think is, like, page like 75 or something like it's it's you know at least two or three like full comics lengths issues in that you get the subspace highway which is the first bit of like magical realism and you know i think that that is like just such a cool idea that like you have this fantastical element of it but that you do Mm -hmm. hold back a little bit with it um and you know the the thing that i have like a very distinct memory of it reading for the first i guess we should mention as well like when we read this and stuff because i don't know 
that I've read every volume, but I certainly have distinct memories of like reading the first few volumes. Um, you know, I think I like borrowed them from a camp friend and then like got other stuff out of from like the library and things like that. Like these were very much books that were around. Like if you have like five yeah, nerd totally. friends, someone has it. Yeah, someone has them. Yeah, yeah. It's the same. Like it's like uh, like Game of Thrones or something yeah. like that pre pre TV show where it's like. No, it's not just like everywhere and everybody has it. But if you like run in certain circles, like someone <laughs> has it for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty sure I read it um, in my like great comics, uh, like <laughs> bedrock foundation building summer after high school when I read like thousands of comics over the course of the summer. Um, I'm pretty sure I, I have a memory of reading it at like three in the morning during <laughs> one of those uh, those halcyon days. And the, the, the thing that I always remember that I was going to bring up is the the moment during the Matthew Patel encounter when mm-hmm. I think like a big like sort of like flip switch moment is when Kim is like, doesn't he know uh, Scott's yeah. the best fighter in the province? Which is like, I was I was going to bring that up as well. Yeah, where where it really is like not only of course, like the 64 hit combo is such a video game thing, but where it like it's it just takes that 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 kind of expectation that's built by the subspace highway of being like yes this is like a crazy fantastical like magical realism element no i'm not going to explain it like the fact that the characters just accept it should tell you kind of like everything you need to know it takes the like expectation that's built on that and just kind of amplifies it to be like oh yeah he's like a video game like <laughs> side-scrolling fighter game character also yeah, and, or like a and dragon like, ball z it, like i think the fighting yeah. is very much based on like dragon ball z especially where it's like hand-to-hand combat but then it's like you know like two fists hitting each other creates a shock wave mm-hmm. and like everyone is like sort <laughs> of like emanating energy at all times and like can yeah, fly and it's like it's it's like you you like need to establish that so that later on when it's like oh todd is a vegan and that gives him like superpowers it's just like okay that makes sense and no one questions it no one questions when people like explode and turn into money like it it, i think he does a good job of kind of seeding in enough of Mm -hmm. those elements early on that when it's like time to really kind of go off the rails in a way that (laughs) i feel like if you did it too fast you might kind of lose some people it's it is more just sort of like an escalation of something that has already been part of it kind of the whole time yeah absolutely i will say that you know you were talking about the first scene i that i've seen the movie several you know i've probably seen the movie like five to ten times probably closer to five than ten but several times and it is hard now to read the comic and not like hear that hear, in the back yeah, of your head hear like michael sarah being like I'm hurt, Kim. Yeah. Especially because, like, that is such, I think, like, an iconic script. <laughs> like, that that's yeah. a movie that, like, you know, obviously if you watch a movie enough times, it's going to stick in your memory. I watched The uh, Parent Trap last night, and <laughs> that, that I just... And did the whole secret handshake that she has with the butler. <laughs> I described yeah, that course, movie as, like, know a movie that's, like, I. it's not that I know every line of it, it's that I know every sound that occurs in the movie. And so it's, like, I'm not only, like, doing the lines, it's, like... I can do the line and then there's like a music sting and a sound effect that like is all it's like oh like that's the next line is that there's this music cue Um, and so it's Scott Pilgrim is not quite on that level for me but like that is a script where it's like 
the 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 words and the line readings will just like stick in your head very clearly Mm -hmm. yeah i think like my main takeaway especially from the first volume was the extent to which the book is not really about like the fights with the exes at all like they take up so little time that as compared with the movie where you're condensing all of them and and he fits in like every single Mm -hmm. fight that happens it they do really feel a lot more sort of central to everything that's happening but in the book they're almost like they're kind of the most boring parts (laughs) in in some ways especially i think like like reading the matthew patel sequence i was like the movie really does like a better job with this as compared to the book where like that was the moment where I was most sort of like, what exactly is, is going on here? And not that like the movie <laughs> and you're not explains looking at the cover it per of the se. Comic, to be clear, when you say what is going on, just what is going on. Yes. No, no, I'm not looking at the cover of the comic, which is Scott pointing. <laughs> and, and I think we've got a good handle on that. Um, <laughs> like just, just in terms of sort of like, I, like they talk about the mystical powers and like the hipster demon chicks appear, but just like my recollection of the movies that like the hipster demon chicks get so much more of sort of like a spotlight in their appearance. And it, for some reason it just like, seems like it makes more sense well, and like fits more. And then the fight is, is a little bit more between the two of them in the movie. Whereas in the book we see like the, like the whole, those, those who are still conscious, like <laughs> yeah. join in and form like his squad with him and it's like, wait, why is like knives helping him fight the hipster <laughs> demon chicks? And like, it's just kind of bizarre. And I was, I found myself kind of just like, okay, like let's get through this and back to like the interesting stuff, which is like him sitting around and like talking to his friends and like making dumb jokes. Yeah. And it, it is, you know, maybe something where, because I think Matthew Patel is such a, a direct like Bollywood reference that like he i think he talks about how he saw a bollywood movie and wanted to have a character like that in a comic Mm -hmm. that like maybe that just translates better to film having like a dance sequence and like music and things like that than it does in a comic but yeah i mean like just talking about the general story i do you know like volume one is like (laughs) it's kind of like iconic like it's hitting all the beats that you associate with this book um and then the, the second volume, you get this extended flashback, which is not in yeah. the movie, and it's the, fir- no. it's the first part. Well, which, because Lisa's not in the movie yes, at all. Which is, I did not remember the character of Lisa, um, and it's the first place where like the book does sort of deviate significantly. And again, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk too much about the movie, uh, no. just because we will talk about it later. But yeah, like, and then I did find the second volume to be a little. I'm not sure if it's a pacing thing or if it's just like, uh, you know, the, the first one is like very exciting because it's introducing everything into the world and sort of introducing the world to us. And then this is sort of like, it feels like it's in a bit of a holding pattern for a lot of the second volume is what I'll say. Yeah, I, I don't know that I fully agree with that. I think that part of why you might sort of feel that way is that it is laying the groundwork for some of the like the turn that will mm-hmm. come with regards to Scott Scott's character later on and so like i know that you're not just talking about the flashback but like the flashback is kind of disjointed in a way that important things are deliberately being left out right but but i think that like this is kind of like essential in some ways to have it be a little bit more of a holding pattern because the like 
the relationship with Ramona gets to feel like a lot more lived in Mm -hmm. the like sort of (laughs) knives is like deterioration gets a little bit more space to kind of like unfold. And then, and then again, like the whole, like Lucas Lee, what's his name again? Lucas, Lucas uh, not Lucas Wilson, the actor or (laughs) the lead singer. That is a great bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That, that whole sequence, like I think is pretty faithfully adapted. um, Of the Lucas Lee movie. And yeah. Well, the, the end is like it's more of a good, fight good and in funny. the second in the movie, I will say. Yeah, well, because there's like the stunt guys, um, whereas in this, Scott just like tricks him into grinding the rail right away. Yeah, pretty much. But but I yeah no I I like it because the cast is so big and because like it just it just gives a larger opportunity to like really get to know like Ramona. Um, I think Stacy, who is like a much bigger character gets a lot of space as well giving knives some more space even people like like steven stills um yeah i i like that it kind of gives space for everyone to sort of just like settle into their characters a little bit more and and be part of the action a little bit more yeah like you see like you get a scene that's just kim like where you see her getting ready for her day and like going to work at the video Mm -hmm. store and then you get the knife and and which i think is like important to see because when you see her separate from her interactions with Scott, she is like in some ways a very different person. And I was like kind of paging ahead. I was looking to, to see if the volumes that I brought with me to uh, sunny California included the, the like revisited flashback sequence um, because I wanted to kind of reminded myself about some of those things and it doesn't but what it did include was a scene where when Scott is looking for a job he comes in to ask Kim if he can work at the video store with her and and it's kind of a similar thing where he like walks in and sees her and she doesn't realize that he's there and she's talking on the phone with someone and has like a big smile on her face and then as soon as she sees him it like turns back into the (laughs) scowl and I feel like those moments to see like this is what Kim is like when like Scott is not around are like part of what makes her like a compelling character and and a, a more complicated character than she like may first appear to be on the surface. Yeah, and I certainly don't begrudge it for having that kind of stuff in there. Like, I mean, like this <laughs> it's kind of ironic that when a lot of the time I am asking for comics to like slow down and like live in the characters <laughs> a little more, and then when a comic does that, I'm like, where's the action? Um, I guess, like, the main thing is maybe just that because, you know, the the sort of the joke of the Lucas Lee encounter is that, like, they don't really fight. Like, he, like, punches him once and, like, destroys him. He throws him into Casaloma. (laughs) And then, like, and then there's this whole rail thing. And so it takes, like, 10 or 15 pages. And so it feels like, like, it's like that comes 100 pages into the book. And so, like, when Mm -hmm. that's the only quote-unquote fight that appears in this book, and that's that's the extent of it, then and then everything else is just like like it feels like everything else is sort of like getting drawn out in order to sort of pad that runtime that would have been missing. Like, it it feels like every scene gets like one or two more pages than it needs. Right. It it does have a sort of. I was thinking about this too. It it really kind of captures the sort of like web comic five mm-hmm. of that time too where like i think the most obvious sort of point of comparison would be 
questionable content, which is similarly a, a web comic about like uh, a white little indie rock boy who falls in love with a girl, uh, any kind of sucks, and you know, it's it's very like kind of slice of life in the same way. It's got a lot of like similar music stuff. It's got a lot of similar kind of just like unaddressed magical realism stuff. I'm actually curious now to go and look and see which which came first because they are uh, in some ways very similar. Uh, although I think questionable content came about a, a year more. before. Wow. I'm, I'm, quite impressive so that uh, that maybe speaks a little bit to how much that kind of thing was in the air but i do think that another big part of that like of questionable content especially in its early days is capturing like the sort of romanticization of like the struggle of being in your early 20s which it, it, it makes me think of my uh, my classic review of Francis Ha, which is that it's like these are all kind of media that convince you that your life would be better if it was kind of bad. <laughs> sure. Where where it just makes it like it makes it seem like having absolutely no money and like nothing to do except like hang out with your friends all day and then go to a job that you don't like, but like it's worth it to go and do that for five hours because the other 19 hours you hang out with these people who you just like love hanging out with and spending time with. Like, I, th- I think that that is sort of the same energy. And again, knowing that like as much as there is an overarching plot, he doesn't have like an end destination in mind. He is kind of like channeling the manga spirit where, you know, a, a successful manga can run for like dozens of volumes and so not to say that there's like filler in here per se, like I don't consider it to be filler, even though it's not necessarily addressing like the, or, or moving the primary action yeah. along or even really introducing like secondary plots or anything like that. Like I do, I do think that it's, it's sort of part of the serialization of the book and the extent to which you like that maybe depends on how you <laughs> relate to to more sort of serialized stories and and which parts of the book or or the story at large sort of appeal to you the most um and for me like the slice of life stuff really is the the bread and butter so to speak which famously makes you fat mm-hmm. um, and you slice it and you slice it <laughs> any way you slice it it's the best part oh. um <laughs> I <hate> it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so cool <laughs> anyways this is like all just long-winded like coming coming around to say like i can see a universe in which like scott pilgrim is not a published book from oni press but just is like a like pretty popular web comic right and and so it carries that similar sort of energy with it i think yeah and even you know he talks a little bit about like working on web comics and um i think kim is actually a character that was in one of his web comics called style and is like imported mm-hmm. from there and i think some of the other like ancillary friend characters are imported from style as well but yeah let's go to <laughs> this is like the rare episode where like i i am you know we're back to our days of i'm keeping us on track to stay under three hours uh (laughs) i have to work in like an hour (laughs) so uh, this is going to be a mere two hour episode to prepare us for the other two episodes that are coming in the next two weeks yeah we'll have lots of opportunity to to talk about some of these things yes uh, but let's talk a little bit about the two central women in scott's life knives and ramona um the big thing with knives that i wanted to 
talk about is just like, and, you know, we did get into this a little bit earlier on, but the fact that, because, you know, I think, you know, even if you're reading other races into the book, like Scott is a white guy. <laughs> his yeah, energy, uh, his energy is yeah. overwhelmingly like plain Jane white guy. Um, and so that doesn't well well and they talk about like you know he's sort of like the the forbidden fruit for her because right, he is white right 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 and so you have this it's an interesting decision to me for a half Asian guy to make a story about a white protagonist with an Asian girlfriend mm-hmm. and I think and and especially and an underage Asian girlfriend as well mm-hmm. which I think sort of gets into some of like the maybe not darkness around scott although it is kind of dark but like (laughs) the this is not a good guy elements of it certainly and like that idea like an indie rock guy who loves like video games and nerd culture and like i don't think we ever hear him talk about like manga or comics but like certainly he's like working well he's got like his x patch on his jacket that is like an x-men reference yeah um and certainly working in that wheelhouse like I feel like mm-hmm. fetishization of Asian women is also like part of that <laughs> starter pack. Yeah, totally. I think that like he his his reasons for everything about Knives's like character are laid bare in the conversation that he has with Stacy when she calls him to be like, "What's this I hear about you're like dating a sixteen year old?" Because like everything about her is is like he picked the traits that are meant to show like how much she is really like not a person to Scott so much Mm. as she is just like a fantasy that makes him like feel good about himself where it's like, yeah, she's like an underage Chinese Catholic school girl. Like every single detail is meant to be like titillating in a disgusting way. Yes. (laughs) Which, and which is why like all of his friends, like, I mean his, his male friends or at least Steven stills is kind of like, it seems like a good idea but like kim is like instantly disgusted wallace is like as soon as as like a real relationship crops up in his life he's like you need to break up with her immediately like and i'm not joking yeah (laughs) wallace is 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 just a real like this is so sad kind of guy yeah and and stacy like obviously part of it is that she's like just needling scott but she she at some level too is like what are you doing? <laughs> like all, all of it is meant to be something that you can see how Scott, who is like still kind of reeling and is really just sort of like taking his first steps back towards like being able to be in a relationship. Why like knives appeals to him. But at the same time, everything about her is also chosen so that for someone viewing it externally, especially without the knowledge of um, sort of like the relationship trauma that he's recovering from, is meant to just be like, this is bad. <laughs> yeah, certainly there is like plenty of emotional regression that is sort of tied up in that. And then I think that's interesting because like, as he transitions into Ramona, like in a lot of, you know, obviously there are a lot of like coming of age type elements in this book, but like the fact that his transition into Ramona is like, he sees this person and like, it's, it is sort of like love at first sight and he has a certain conception of the way she is because it's like she has dyed hair, she rollerblades, like she <laughs> like has a certain aesthetic and things like that. And then like most of the book really is about like he falls in love with her based on like this look that he sees in her and then discovers over time that like she is so much more complex than like 
just like a person with with an aesthetic. Uh, and you know, uh, that's that's in the air at the time. That sort of you know, we talked about five hundred days of summer as well, but like that that deconstruction of like the male gaze in some way and like the male sort of perspective and like lack of emotional perspective on relationships. Like I'm, I'm thinking of like eternal sunshine comes out like around the same mm-hmm. time as this. Uh, <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm not as familiar with the eternal sunshine to go that? back and reflect on it, but uh, I think I have seen it, but it's like once a long time ago. Well, like I, I feel like I also sometimes get it confused with other movies which is, you know, neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah, well, Eternal Sunshine is sort of the original, like, manic pixie dream girl deconstruction, which is weird because it came around before manic pixie dream girl was coined. Uh, but right. yeah, like, er, you know, early 2000s, like, the character who was the the genesis of the term was Kirsten Dunst in Elizabeth Town. <laughs> <laughs> and says exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. And it's like, in a lot of ways, like, that in the first volume especially, it's like, that is what Ramona is to Scott. Like, she is, like, she is a gateway into adulthood for her in a lot of, for him in a lot of ways. Like, it's the, like, the person who drags him from, like, the knives chow of, of the war, of his, like, global outlook (laughs) into like Mm -hmm. adulthood but then you know it's like it's sort of that the first volume is like you got the girl and now it's like what does a relationship with that person look like and like how like how much more is there to this person other than what they bring to your like emotional development yeah and uh, uh, yeah and like what is the emotional development that they need to go to because through rather um because like the whole like the last section is like she explains the evil x thing and it's like laying out the sort of like hero's quest that he's going to need to go through in order to you know kind of become the man that that she needs but then like the ending of the book is that like he mentions Gideon and she has that like thing that happens mm-hmm. with her head, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which, which like happens basically whenever she is, I, we will maybe talk about that a little bit more with the future volumes, the whole, the whole head glow thing, but it's like related to the trauma of her relationship mm-hmm. with Gideon. And, and that's like how it ends is like, she like visibly shuts down on him basically. And he is like left confused about like, what he has done or said to like cause this to happen and like uncertainty about the relationship. Like he, he says like, do you still want to go out with me? And she like snaps back. Yes. And then the last panel is him like looking at his own reflection in the bus window and like kind of freaking out. So it like right from the start to an extent is like, as much as this is about like the things that Scott needs to go through in order to like, basically like be a good partner it's also going to be about like what are the things like basically why is Ramona so like haunted by her past in this way Mm -hmm. and what are the things that she needs to go through in order to be a good partner for Scott as well yeah you know I think it's it's very clear that like the concept of having evil exes is very much like a metaphor for the emotional baggage that they both carry Um, and you know I think that that's maybe like part of what the book is about that like your early 20s is like 
it's not your first relationship, but you're still young enough that like every relationship has been impactful, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so like that sort of becomes like what the book is about is like sort of dealing with like the emotional fallout of those relationships, especially like growing in emotional maturity and then realizing that you did not deal with those relationships at the time. (laughs) Yeah. And, and like, I think that as much as it is about how like Scott has to fight Ramona's evil exes, like he has his own exes who we've talked about all crop up at various points and, and are like present challenges that he and Ramona have to overcome as well, which are different from like the, the very sort of like literalized battle that he has to have with Ramona's exes. But they still are each their own sort of like emotional barrier and, and, their own thing that cause roadblocks in their relationship in the same way that him having to like contend with her exes are. Yeah. And I think if there is one thing that sort of like points towards that, like many manic pixie dream girl energy, this, you know, I'm just looking at Wikipedia right now where I get all my research from, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the Ebert, (laughs) Roger Ebert talks about, uh, in garden state, the Natalie Portman character, he he calls it a movie creature, which is a great turn of phrase. Um, (laughs) A girl who is completely available, absolutely desirable and really likes you. And we learn almost nothing about her except that she's great to look at and has these positive attributes. And I think to, to a large extent that is what Ramona is in like the first volume of Scott Pilgrim. Like, it is kind of strange to us as the reader that, like, why is she interested in him? Like, he was, like, weird to her at a party and just, like, seems interested. And then she, like, seems really cool and yet deigns to be with Scott. And so I think that is maybe, mm-hmm. like, where that comes from. And then as the book progresses is when we sort of, like, start to see, like you said, like, it starts at the end of the first volume that we sort of get the idea that, it's not just like hunky dory so to speak i think in terms of like scott's exes playing a big role the second volume has i think one of the like cooler narrative sequences in the comic which is the phone call when envy calls scott is is just like an intensely cool <laughs> sequence that that i'm just flipping through to see if i can find where it is that sets her up as like such a villainous character and captures his like like his state of mind just from hearing her voice like the way that he he puts the panels together so that sometimes they make a complete image and sometimes like it's it's just a very cool effect where it seems so disjointed even when we see him like in writ large he's split up by panel borders but most of the time we can only see like the corner of his eye or like the phone or this picture of them together that he's looking at and and like she's she's not really there at all apart from the photo and it just casts this like sort of ominous pall over the whole sequence and and he goes into like this very rigid grid for the layout, which is so not what the rest of the book mm-hmm. is. I just think it's a really cool piece of of storytelling that gets like like he spends as much space on the phone call, I feel like, as he probably does on the Lucas Lee fight. Oh, I'm sure. And it it represents this like emotional conflict for him 
that he loses that is in a lot of ways like way more important than the lucas lee fight yeah and it's coming directly on the heels as well of the fight between knives and ramona which is like Mm -hmm. you know a a development in that side of things as well uh yeah i think in general like we talked about the art a little bit but i feel like part of what i think when you're reading this what makes you like you can see how people were inspired to make a movie out of it because the action and even like the not action as well but like there's so much dynamism to it i think and also like i think that is where the manga influence comes in in some ways is like the dynamism of the motion and like the way people can like move inhumanly and like that again that sort of gets back to like the magical realism Mm -hmm. like that people move like manga characters in a way but like in in real life i think sort of like adds to that action-y feel and like you know it's like even the conversation scenes can have like an energy to them even if it's like a delicate energy like i'm looking at the panel where ramona's like (laughs) is making her list of things that are not cool about scott's apartment uh and that sort of like she the of like her drawing is very or writing rather has like this like dynamism to it as well which i feel it can be very cinematic at times. Like I think in the, like in the fight scene with uh, knives and Ramona, when she, he has that, that page where knives like realizes that Scott was cheating on her and it's like a double splash page, but it switches to like uh, a three, four aspect ratio or four, three aspect ratio, whichever where it like at, with like the black bars at the top, like it literally turns into like, a widescreen panel for that and like when he picks up the phone to talk to envy as well it's not like the same black bars but it like completely blows out the the panels into like these big two-page spreads that feel very like they're they're laid out in a way that is very cinematic and puts like just communicates the emotional weight of the scene really effectively and then of course like you're saying like the the you know all of the action stuff is so dynamic because it has like the heavy like the heavy manga influence with like the speed lines and and like the ways that he conveys motion um all all lend themselves to a very sort of like kinetic uh feel to everything that that happens i'm wondering in terms of the art if in the color editions like are you still in that that sort of like ramona knives fight section i can pull that up certainly if you if you go to that page that i was talking about where she realizes that scott was cheating on her does she have um the like screen tone dots all over her uh like like i know what you mean i think and no she is just like color and i think the coloring in general is like fairly flat by and large which I have sort of mm-hmm. mixed feelings about. And then the background it's, is just like um, a solid I think red. it's Nathan... Right. It's Nathan Fairbairn, I mm-hmm. think, who does the yeah. colors. He's So he's like a pretty well-known colorist who... I usually like his work quite a bit, but as I fetched about uh, on the last episode, I don't really think this is a work that is screaming out to be colored. Um, but I was curious about that because he uses... it's It's called screen tone, but he uses it all the time in the book to like both shade people and to like fill in backgrounds sometimes and like anytime one of the characters is wearing like stockings or fishnets he'll often use screen tone to do that um 
I was curious about it because I noticed that he sort of changed how he was using it between the two volumes where in the first volume, it really is just kind of texture and background. But in the second one, he will often have it be kind of like around characters and give them like a sort of aura that that is used to kind of like capture the emotional state in a similar way to what the sort of um, like red wash shading effect that we talked about in Lost at Sea does. Right. Yeah, there are there are a few instances when I can see it, but generally speaking, no, it's just like it's just colored out for the most part. Which is again like interesting. <laughs> like you said, I don't think it's a book that needs to be colored. I think like we t- we've talked before about how like making a book for black and white means that usually like it should be in black and white. And I don't think the colors were distracting, but it probably, you know, I'll probably continue reading color just so that we can have the contrast, but it probably would not be my first choice, which is like a very straight, I'm sure even to like people now is like a strange thought, but like the idea that you would rather read something in black and white than a colorized version, I think like is probably foreign to a lot of people. There was a second part that I was wondering about the, um color effect for which is on the page where knives confesses her love he actually does the thing that i was talking about a bit when we were uh, i think it was in understanding or maybe making comics we were talking about like how you know the script can be used to change the meaning of a word <laughs> and when she confesses that she's in love it's in this very like florid script uh, right. i was wondering if that particular like lettering was kept in black and white yes the so the the word bubble where she says the word love is is in just black text yes and then the love breath the cloud. is in pink <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, yeah, I was just curious about that, that particularly, because I feel like, like, not not that there's like no value to, or no, like no storytelling value to the color. But I was I was thinking about that panel, particularly because I feel like it really shows how, like, in his pocket he is with as as like a total storyteller, where I think he's lettering these books too, right? Um, I believe so. I can check the credits. Looking at the, comment, uh, the credits here. I'm pretty sure that is the case. Uh, and it's like, it's pretty rare, even for like solo cartoonists to have one person do the like writing, penciling, inking and lettering. Right. Yeah. The, the credit, well, the credits are weird in this edition. Uh, I maybe have to look to the back, but there is there is a credit here where it says lettering remastered by Troy Look. So maybe I I would imagine he is doing his own lettering and that it is being like it says remastered. And the only people who are credited on like the back cover and stuff are Brian Lee O'Malley and Nathan Fairbairn. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm pretty sure he is doing his own lettering. And and anyways, all that to say, like these books really are like a storytelling showcase in some ways. And we talked about him as like kind of the pure artist in lost at Mm. sea. And I feel like his craft is more so on display in these volumes. Like as, as much as we sort of talked about him as kind of being like a, a pure sort of instinct artist in lost Mm -hmm. at sea, I feel like he has developed a lot, especially between like lost at sea and volume two, for example, Mm -hmm. 
And so I was just curious about the colorization in that one, particularly because I was like, that is a panel where not that it changed, like it changes the storytelling effect of like lettering in that way, but using color, like that's just a one where I feel like using color could amplify the storytelling effect that he is using. And so it just surprises me that, that that's like something, I guess it doesn't surprise me that that's not changed per se, but yeah. And I do think I will say like, I think that the art in volume two does lend itself a little bit better to the colorization, but yeah, like I think pretty immediately, like I think of this art as being a little bit like, you know, like when we read lost, it's I was like, Oh, well this is like pretty close. Like it's not as refined, but it's like pretty close to how Scott Pilgrim looks. And it's like, no, Scott Pilgrim does like look really good. <laughs> like, yeah, I think yeah. his style. And, and I think, yeah. And I think he is like, very much like growing in real time and like if you compare like the first pages of volume one to the last pages of volume two they will look different and i'm sure if you compare like with the art in volume six on which i think he he adds some assistance for that one so naturally it's going to have a bit more detail and a bit more refinement but i just have no doubt that it looks a lot more polished and a lot more refined and and it's just yeah, it's just a consequence of like, you know, he's still a very young creator and getting tons of practice basically yeah. by getting the opportunity to make these these books. And again, we I don't really know much about what his like kind of formal training with art is, but um, like I think we've seen on several occasions, like we talked about it with Fiona Staples and I think as well with Pia Guerra in the BKV miniseries. Like there just are these ones where even like both of those are formally trained artists, but there's just no kind of like match for just actually doing it and especially doing it in like a collaborative partnership, I'm sure uh, amplifies that even more. But yeah, I, I think it's just very much on display to see how much like you can practice all you want, but when you are actually like doing the thing, you are going to learn the skills better than just sort of practicing or, or approaching it in a more theoretical way. Yeah. And since we, we did talk about it in Lost at Sea, I do think like, you know, just in the way the characters are designed, the manga influence is a lot more evident here. Um, like I, I was looking back at Lost at Sea and I was like, I almost see like, like, like I think you mentioned seeing webcomic in it and I do see that as well. Mm-hmm. But then also like Calvin and Hobbes, <laughs> I see it in there as well. <laughs> Whereas this one, it's like, yeah. especially just like with the, the way the character's eyes are proportioned and their mouths and things like that. Yeah. Like it just look like the huge eyes. You yeah. see, you see it a lot more in this than you do in Lost at Sea. Um, and just since, yeah, since sure. we are picking or thinking of lost at sea i should also mention this thing that i saw in the uh the pitch document because this is now we look less smart i will say uh (laughs) okay i'll just read the full paragraph here scott has hit this point in his life where he's in sort of a slacker zen state nothing really bothers him and he's always pretty cheery in a laid-back kind of slightly disturbing way if Raleigh from Lost at Sea was more complex than most people, then Scott is less complex than most people, and that suits him <laughs> fine. He plays video games, cooks dinner for his friends and roommate, watches television, refrains from smoking or drinking or having sex with his desperately horny 17-year-old girlfriend, and has a great old time of it all. And it is it is annoying that that is on paper somewhere, because I was like, this is a great observation about how Raleigh is like more complex than most people, and Scott's less complex, but now it turns out, well, maybe... Uh, does that make us smarter or dumber? Probably both. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I think it just means that his his intentions came through clearly and effectively, especially kind of with regards to like, I don't know that I necessarily look at Raleigh and say like, she's more complex than most people, but you definitely look at Scott and say like, yeah, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's not exactly like a, a deep well. Yeah. I think like the big thing about him is just like how readily he is like pulled by the first thing that crosses his attention. Like he, yeah. he has knives and then he sees Ramona and is sort of pulled towards that. And like, I think that, yeah, it's this sort of zen state like that Brian Liam I talks about is like <laughs> he sort of goes with it and then when he sees something that he likes he'll sort of gravitate towards that and <laughs> and and like so fully that he like forgets that <laughs> knives exist. Right. <laughs> what else? Uh, you know, we can talk a little bit more about Ramona. Um this little like hand so it you know, it shows some of his character planning documents and things like that uh in the extras. And one of the things he writes on Ramona's character sheet is, I can't take things for granted. I can't assume that you like my character. I should work on everything within the story. You should like her by the end, or at least understand the way she ticks. And I think that that, like, having that mentality in mind is, like, such a huge thing that makes this book successful. Is like, you know, <laughs> not to again evoke the film Ambulance that I saw yesterday, but, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it... It's so nice and helps a book in such a huge way when secondary characters have texture. Not that Ramon is a secondary character, but I think in general, like his approach to characters and giving them that dimension makes such a big difference in making the book more interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's very good stuff is, is all I can say. Uh, and then, you know, this goes back to the Toronto thing. Uh and sort of what he was reaching for by setting the book in Toronto and making it so specifically Toronto and like hyper local in that way. He talks about Ramona. He says like he, he had a friend from New York or something like that. And he says like the idea of Ramona was taking like a cool New York girl and bring her to boring old Toronto. And so that, <laughs> that is interesting to me because I don't feel like maybe he does in some ways, but like, I don't feel like he finds Toronto boring necessarily, uh, but no, I, I think that that's like kind of the, the, uh, we, we talked about a little bit in the first episode about how he has a sort of energy of like fanboy made good. Um, and I think that that is, is part of it where he's naturally going to be either like comedically, but only half jokingly self-deprecating, or he's going to be like extremely comedically, hyperbolically like egotistical yeah (laughs) yes his uh his whole thing is like very on display here i feel like but yeah and and, like it's it's interesting book because like it does in some ways feel like it's establishing toronto in the same way that like a new york city or an la would be established as like a media like a place where things are set and it's just like oh yeah like we know mm-hmm. we know like landmarks of new york city we know landmarks of la just like from movies being set there but then also like maybe that's not it because it is like i said it's hyper local it is like his neighborhood that he yeah. was living in yeah it is it is so i think yeah i think that part of it is just that he number one was like looking for references in the environment around him and so it just was easy to be like well it's going to be set in toronto because i'm in toronto Mm -hmm. and you know it's 
there's so many elements of his life in it so it just makes sense to set it in a place where no matter what he draws reference from it's not going to look out of place because it's it that like it's just going to be real stuff from that setting but uh, but yeah it is it i definitely think that he sort of leverages the landmarks of toronto to be like it, it, it the toronto of the whole book is certainly like on display i think that he is sort of going for that like you know city as a character mm-hmm, cliche mm-hmm. but not not so much that it's like this book is like what it about what it means to be like a torontonian or like captures the spirit of the city or anything like that like i think that he just likes the the reality of having toronto be so like fully on display while also like it, it it's it's important to the contrast of those like you know the the magical realism slash fantastical mm-hmm. elements that make up so much of the appeal of the book part of what makes them work so well is that they're backdropped against not just like a real place but like carefully like referenced drawings <laughs> of real places including ones that aren't necessarily going to like instantly pop for someone to be like oh that place like you know like his his house that he lived in or things like yeah, that like i was sort of thinking about like landmarks and it's like we see Casa Loma, that's like pretty close to his house mm-hmm. like that's a very identifiable landmark certainly and then like the second biggest thing that we see at least in this chunk of issues is like lee's palace <laughs> like the like eighth <laughs> most popular concert venue in toronto <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the the inclusion of things like that is like like it, you know it's not like we like see the cn tower all the time no although it's it's not not there sure it's very tall famously uh F- famously you, famously you watch turning red right oh yes yes okay. i have just another piece of toronto uh uh-huh. media <laughs> <laughs> asian canadiana uh, sure absolutely Wish there was more Sky Dome in uh, in Scott Pilgrim. I gotta say, absolutely. Um, what else? I mean, another, another thing that I, that did come to mind, and then it was interesting because the Crash and the Boys drum head. <laughs> did you see this? That the the bass drum says the Archies. No, I didn't. But that is very funny. Uh, because my thought was like the the show is very much a, like sort of like a recontextualized Archie situation, where like he has the two girls who are invited to the same event who like don't know the other is there <laughs> and has to like run back in between them. Uh, but that, but it's, that's it is, a good take. It's like a postmodernist <laughs> Archie in some ways because it's less of you know I guess it is to some degree still about like how like he has to scramble around and like be stressed and stuff but it's also like mm-hmm. about like it's so cruel <laughs> to the women that you would do <laughs> like it's not like i found myself in a pickle it's like i did a morally reprehensible thing <laughs> no that's a good take um i was also thinking about archie in that scene mostly because i was looking at the drum set especially during the scenes where trasha is uh is grinding it up and being like does he do the Archie thing? And the answer is not really. They look kind of weird, but they make sense at least, which, you know, he is a musician. So I would expect them <laughs> to <laughs> be a little bit more faithful. That scene also has a funny little like Easter egg type thing in that he, so Scott is wearing a plum tree shirt 
Plumtree, of course, being the artist behind Scott Pilgrim, but also he's wearing a shirt for their album Mass Teen Fainting, and the first time that you see yes. that is when he comes back in after Crash and the Boys have played their song that knocks out the audience. Sure, 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 sure. Um, uh, which he, I just it tickled me. He does tell a story about finding that album at the Westmount Mall at Sunrise Records. Oh, no, Sunrise Records wasn't there that early, was it? That's what he says. I can only report what he said. At, at, wait, at which mall? At, at Westmount. Masonville? No, no, no. Oh, at Westmount. Okay. Masonville, of I course, had say, HMP at the sure time. I remember when the Sunrise moved into Masonville, and that's too early. But Westmount makes more sense for him geographically. Yes, absolutely. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about at this time? Like, I have a couple of random little notes. Like, uh, one, one thing he writes about is, like... Uh, when in another one of his sort of like book documents, like I was saying was is thesis. Cool people are not cool. And I, (laughs) I wonder whether like who that applies to, like, is this Scott? Is this like the whole scene that they inhabit or are they the cool ones in contrast to like the, the like sort of more mainstream cool. Like there are, there are different ways to interpret it. I feel like, yeah, there, there, the whole social scene. I was kind of like having trouble, like getting a, a much of a great read on just into like. So there's like certainly like some emo-ish elements, but like that's not really. It's like indie rock. I, yeah, I, it's just funny for like all the like all the talk of like being indie people in Toronto at that time. There's like. There's no like broken social scene or I did any see, of their like kind of a uh, at the at the sec at the second cup there is a a Nico case like flyer in the background I did see right and and Scott is wearing a new pornographer's shirt at one point as well but I was surprised like how little of that whole kind of like section of the music scene there there is in that because it feels like it should be kind of like you know. The, the main thing in some ways and i feel like clash at demon head is in some ways sort of like a take on that that sort of like branch of music i was in the Toronto wondering scene. like who are they supposed to be exactly yeah i'm not sure that they're supposed to be anyone specifically but i do think that it's very telling that when they made the movie they were like metric yes i mean certainly like that is like makes a lot of sense i i will say because like the big the big montreal band at that time would have been arcade fire which is like that's not quite right yeah yeah they're they're i mean arcade fire could also kind of connect to it too because todd and uh envy are both from montreal which is where they they pulled together but but yeah, I, I think it, there is a reason that they gravitated toward Metric, who are part of that whole like broader broken social scene network. But but anyways, <laughs> all this to say, like as far as their kind of like what their whole social group is, what their whole sort of scene is, I was having like a little bit of difficulty clocking. And of course, there's like the weirdness of like the fact that Knives just hangs around all the time, and like I can't imagine me at seventeen hanging out with like. 26 year old sure yeah but i i do think that that is like very much like i mean like we are pretty square i will say like i have friends who like even in london would be like 
they go to house shows and they like have a network of people they know through like going to shows like house shows and like call the office uh and one thing that another again i'm talking a lot about the extras in the back of the book but one of brian's like first things is he did a poster for plum tree playing at call the office (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's like he had there's like a print I bet it's of it. on the wall there somewhere there's like a print of it with uh like signatures and stuff um have i told you about the radiohead poster that's up at call the office <laughs> no you have not uh, that's just like one of the crazy so so they have like it's not really a poster per se call the office is a, a like minor music venue in london for those who are not familiar um and they have their like calendars up for like every month going back to like 1996 and if you like trawl them carefully you will sometimes see names that just like put your jaw on the floor yeah <laughs> and one such a name was that i was there once um and and it was like looking through the calendars and i saw that radio had played like three shows there in like the fall of 1996 or something and i was like what how can this be (laughs) it's pretty crazy also we should mention r.i.p call the office as of like i think like end of 2020 but uh is there anything else we want to talk about i know i'm sure you have awards things uh some light awards talk uh i have a couple of other things scott says he learned the final fantasy 2 battle theme which is of course actually the final fantasy 4 battle oh, theme okay. so <laughs> explain this to this, the right? normies yeah i i kind of like i know that there's a whole thing about final fantasy numbering but like i well, couldn't break down for you like this one is actually this one well, it's just that there there were only three Final Fantasies released in the U.S. of the first six. So one is one, two is four, and three is six, which I think most people agree are, like, the good ones of, like, well, people like three as well. But I think of the first, like, NES and Super NES generation, right. those are considered, like, the good ones. Because seven is, like, the big one, right? Yeah, seven is the one. It's the first three D one. It's the first That's one on like PlayStation. Cloud and yeah. uh, Leon and all of them. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. What's her yeah. face? The girl that everyone loves. Tifa or Aerith? Both. <laughs> Aren't they both also in seven? Aerith in Kingdom. Yes, they're both in seven. A squall who you know as Leon because of Kingdom right. Hearts is in Final Fantasy Eight. He is not in call- the same games. <laughs> Why can't they call him Squall in Kingdom Hearts? I don't remember. I think I don't think there was even actually a reason. They just call him Leon. And like there's a part where like they call him Squall or something. Maybe it's just they thought it was like a too weird of a word to name someone in like a game that's more for children or something. Okay, maybe. Uh anyway, so it gets very <laughs> confusing because like until the Game Boy Advance re make slash ports of final fantasy one and two genre with final fantasy tactics advanced no but (laughs) very wrong but (laughs) (laughs) until that point it was like the only final fantasy games in the in north america were one two three and seven right and they were all numbered differently oh oh right yeah okay that's what you're saying yeah it's like uh it's like the beatles albums how they all have different titles for a little while in the states Right, exactly. Same idea. Um, in the movie store that Kim works at when Scott goes in, the only two real movies, like, there are a bunch of, like, fake movie titles. Uh-huh. 
but the two real ones are Cube and Cube 2 Hypercube. <laughs> and also, there's a Mr. Show DVD. Oh, that's good. We love it. Um, and then the one other thing I have is on the cover of Now, the famous, like, Toronto free yeah, circular. Like free daily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is a, a headline, which I, I feel like we have talked about basically like this type of headline, which is, Bam, pow, comics aren't just for kids anymore. <laughs> that is literally, yes, verbatim uh, a headline we have talked about and that like, yeah, has, has literally run verbatim in things that we pulled to talk about on this show. Um, do they have, I feel like every uh, video store like fictional video store should have Rochelle Rochelle on the shelf. Do they? Did you notice? Oh, that's like Rochelle um, the shell with shoes on. No, Rochelle Rochelle (laughs) is like a Seinfeld gag where they all want to go see this like blockbuster movie. Um, but are all also intrigued by this film that's called like Rochelle Rochelle colon a young woman's erotic journey from Milan to Minsk or something like that. (laughs) And then like over the course of the episode, they all get separated and then end up in the same screening of Rochelle Rochelle. And then they call it back several times (laughs) over the course of the show where like, there's like a Rochelle Rochelle standee that George is like, Oh, (laughs) maybe I want this. Anyways, (laughs) I, I do love a classic fake movie gag. There's yep. one, oh, I forget what it's from, but there's something where it's like a black and white movie where Daniel Radcliffe is a dog walker. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? It's it's from that or that is the fake movie? That is the fake movie. No, I think it's when like I... A, when when a like it, when it's something like that where they go all in and like produce like a fake trailer or have like fake scenes that's yeah i i usually think of tropic thunder i feel like because they've is, got like the oscar role for robert Downey right. jr's character it is from train wreck uh, oh, amy yeah, schumer and john sense. cena watched the movie the dog walker which right. is daniel radcliffe as a dog walker who is together with marissa tomei <laughs> just uh, a good bit uh, uh, but i love a good fake movie certainly yes but we digress uh awards heavily. talk <laughs> yes awards you, talk i feel like you mentioned already that this was not like a super like it wasn't like everyone immediately paid attention to this when well, it came out right yeah it's it's funny because so after volume one came out it, he won a Doug Wright Award for like Best Newcomer, which is like a Canadian um, awards thing. Um, well, it really should be a Doug Draw Award, in my opinion. <laughs> nice. Um, and then he was nominated, or Volume 1 was nominated for um, Best New Talent, Best uh, Cartoonist, and... Um, best like basically best original graphic novel it has a different name that's like best original album of new material or something like that right. but so he was nominated in those three categories at the harveys and won none of them and then like didn't get nominated again until like volume five <laughs> like right. so so he it was like it had like it wasn't a zero critical impact um upon release but he got like a bit of notice from a canadian award and then from the harveys as well after volume one but then just like yeah it it was basically then not until things really ramped up as the movie was getting closer that uh he sort of got back onto the critical radar in that way 
Yeah, that's just, it's so weird to me that, like, something as ubiquitous as, like, something that feels so ubiquitous now, like, if they had never made a movie, people probably would just not know about this. Like, even, like, comics people, I guess, right? Or probably, like, comics people would be aware of it. Yeah, it's it's tricky for me to sort of, like, look back and recall exactly what it was because... like the movie came out right around the time i was getting really into comics but my recollection of it was like they're adapting this like you know well-known not not like you know not ubiquitous in the way that i think the movie has sort of made it but it was like Mm -hmm. a like it would be like if they were um actually maybe that's not a good example i was gonna say it was like if they were making a bone adaptation but i was like i think bone actually has a bit of a bigger cultural footprint yeah bone's than, a big deal than scott pilgrim did at the time but maybe maybe like for example like i saw a bunch of tweets or news or something that they are like about to release an animated usagi yojimbo show so i was like it might be more along those lines where like you know comics people you know real ones know yeah real one real ones know and like some non-real ones might also know (laughs) street's been waiting on usagi usagi ujimbo that's what you're saying (laughs) i i certainly have been waiting on uh, usagi ujimbo but i think it's (laughs) more streets in this situation yeah i think it's more in that vein i mean even usagi might might be it just because it's been running for so long and has like garnered so many awards it's a bit more like iconic whereas you know scott pilgrim like wasn't even finished yet when the movie was coming out um but but yeah that would be kind of like my point of comparison where it's like it might not have been on the radar of like every single person even like the weekly warriors who are hitting the comic shop every wednesday and following a a lot of marvel and dc books but um you know it certainly was like people people with um who who were more into like the indie side of things or who had been like like following the the industry for a long time or things like that like it wasn't this like unheard of niche book right um but it also wasn't like the like mega hit that you know people are like begging for the adaptation for and it was like this huge thing when they announced the adaptation or anything like that and also wasn't like like we said like it wasn't critically celebrated necessarily because like obviously there are some comics where it's like even if they don't make a mark in like mainstream culture they become like the awards favorites where it's like it wins like five eisners or whatever yeah cool yep (laughs) (laughs) uh well i suppose uh that will do it for us for today uh, next week we will be covering volumes three and four. I can never remember. I believe three title. three is the infinite sadness, and four is gets it together. Sure. Um, yeah, the I feel like the titles are simultaneously I, distinctive, <laughs> but you cannot. I I have real trouble remembering what happens in each volume. Like even it's the insane. ones we did today, like I couldn't tell you what happens in one and what happens in two necessarily oh i i yeah maybe one is like a little more distinctive because it like ends on such a clear has like such clear points of delineation where it ends after like the first encounter right but the other ones like it gets way muddier i feel like uh i i feel like they're mostly kind of broken up by which exes he fights for me that i can i can sort of distinguish them that way but i do uh, i feel i think i can do the titles off the dome which would be (laughs) precious little life versus the world infinite sadness gets it together 
Darkest hour. Scott finest Pilgrim's hour. Dark, fi- finest hour. Darkest hour. Finest hour. Finest you hour. The great Gary Oldman film. <laughs> um, Gary Oldman is Winston Churchill in <laughs> Darkest Hour. Anyways, and then versus the universe is Volume Six. I think I might have gotten Finest Hour and versus the universe mixed up. <laughs> Well, you but, killed it. Uh, yeah, you... well, I, I killed the episode for sure. Bury this one. <laughs> you <laughs> can follow us at HFLC Paw. No, no, wait. Shoot, I'm doing my other <laughs> podcast. Don't bring your sports talk into this safe zone where sure, nerds can be nerds without the jocks trying to force hey. sports ball down our throats. Sorry for turning the safe zone into a frickin' end zone. <laughs> you can follow us at GotTheRunsPod on Twitter and email us at GotTheRunsPod at gmail.com. Of course, listen to High Floor, Low Ceiling. And nerds, we're sorry for invoking running on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it should really be called Got the Reads. I'm hitting the puffer <laughs> just thinking about it. Me too. <laughs> Okay. Uh, this is your classic bit where you pretend to smoke a joint but make a bong sound effect. I did uh, recently write out a bong sound, and I think I really nailed it. You really have to get like P's, H's, L's, yeah. and B's. I think or, you start with, with an S and an H, and then there's lots of well, yeah, lots of those <laughs> those things in this name. I uh, was sitting this morning and unprompted thought director bong. I hardly know her. <laughs> Maybe it's just I'd like to direct her bong into my mouth. Yeah, that's, the, that's also, yeah. If I may it. punch it up. Um, of course, Please. listen to Bevy of Bevies as well. Released a great episode on Smart Water recently. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Have you listened to Bevy of Bevies When am I going to be guesting? <laughs> we haven't figured out... <laughs> We haven't figured out how to solve the keeping it to the 20 minute time limit while also having a guest issue. Uh-huh. So, uh, guests are TBD, but of course, you're on the short list. <laughs> um, but that you should just it. make it so that you have to drink the beverage in question on the show. And when the, when everyone is done their drink, the show well, is we, over. The 20 minute time limit is kind of sacred among these circles. Uh-huh. Um, Start the clock. <laughs> good afternoon and you, good night to that, this then? episode. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll continue this discussion later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That will do it for us for this week. But deuces until the world, next time, deuces to, to the world to be, be continued. continued. <laughs> Disastrous. <laughs> it's not going well for our next episode.